that's actually, I think at the core of most mental distress is your current reality compared to the perceived desired reality that is as distant as those two get your reality to what you think it should be, your distress will be great or low. Welcome to episode three in our five-part emotional resilience series of 2023. I hope you've listened to part one and two. If not, here's a little background. I joined an emotional resilience group a few years back. There was a physical therapist, a composer, a nurse, a home economics teacher, and me, a realtor. We did not know each other beforehand, and we were doing this course online because it was during COVID. This group was put together by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an effort to support people in learning emotional resilience. Well, the class focused on learning and practicing both spiritual and practical skills so that we could better take care of our minds and our bodies, our emotions, our relationships during this time. And I know throughout the class that everyone took different things from it because that's just how it works. We're all in different places on this path. It was a 188-page booklet. It was a 10-week course. And I really thought that it was wonderful. I've pulled from it my top things that felt supportive to me and I want to share them with you in your own quest for choosing emotional resilience skills that you can work on to better support your own emotional work. I feel like we're all doing emotional work all the time, and if we're not, we should be, because that is where all the battles are won or lost, is that emotional mental work. So becoming emotionally resilient, that's something we can work on every day, and that's what these five episodes are about. Today, I have included some clips from a mental health discussion that I had with Katherine Reynolds. She is a marriage and family therapist who has shown up in all of our episodes so far. And also parts of a discussion that I had with Brigham Haynes. He's the host of Consider Everything podcast, a podcast about mental health. So take from this episode what resonates with you that you may navigate your life with a bit more resilience one step at a time. This episode part three is all about managing stress and anxiety for emotional resilience. Stay tuned for stories and insights from professionals. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Let's put a few things out on the table. The first is a reasonable look at stress. It's a buzzword in our culture. (laughs) We're going so fast, we're stressed out. Some see it as a badge of honor, even an indicator that they're moving and shaking. But for some, it's gone off the charts and shifted into a debilitating anxiety. So I wanna discuss this for a bit, let's dissect it. Stress in and of itself, guys, that's just a normal part of life. It's how the brain and the body respond to any demand, a problem to be solved at work, an important decision that you need to make. 
The right amount of stress helps you focus and reach your goals. It helps you protect yourself. So stress in the right doses can be an important part of functioning well. So then the question becomes, when does it become too much? Well, when stress becomes uncontrolled worry or perfectionism or a predominant fear that things will never go well, that you won't be good enough to solve the problem at work, then you start dealing with anxiety. Well, anxiety or a feeling of excessive worry or nervousness can cause serious barriers for us. It doesn't fade when the situation is taken care of, it just continues to build. So I asked Katherine Reynolds about her thoughts on stress and anxiety, and she gave some definitions and ideas I thought you would find interesting. Here are her thoughts. So you are an expert in dealing with stress and anxiety, and these two things seem to be super prevalent in our world today. So many people suffering with anxiety disorder. Um, what are your thoughts as a therapist about why this seems to be so big now and then what can you tell us about how to manage it, how to heal? I think they often are written together or said together. I have so much stress and anxiety. They don't have to both exist at the same time. They're two different things and they're not interchangeable. They, could, they can be seen that way, but it's not technically accurate. So stress is very common. It's never ending and it won't stop. Stress exists on all sides and it's good and healthy for us. It's like the definition is a state of mental or emotional strain or tension mm-hmm. resulting from demanding circumstances. Which like, in yeah. the right, yeah, in the right situation, that helps us perform actually, you know, you yeah, feel a little bit of stress. Thing. So you do your homework or you, you do the preparation right. for your speech or your presentation. You care about your yeah. relationships. So you take care of it. Like it's, yeah. a, you care about your kids. So you want to, you stress about them. There's a stressor, but it's a circumstance. It's not a state of mind. Okay. So if you go to anxiety, that's typically even a mental illness or it's a choice due to your own thoughts. Like you can, you can make yourself anxious. Like your body could actually start to respond, even if it's not your mental disorder, because you encourage that kind of like those faulty thinking patterns, like we just talked about, but life will always be stressful, but it's, this is the difference, uh, like symptoms for generalized anxiety disorder has to exist for six months or longer and be persistent worrying in a number of areas that are out of proportion to the impact of our current events, right? Or overthinking plans and solutions to become like to all the possible worst case scenarios. This is when you know that you're above and beyond just normal stress. You're starting to create, like you described the extreme, um, indecisiveness, fear of making decisions, inability to set aside worries, inability to relax. I mean, the list goes on. And why do you feel like Um, that's so prevalent now? Like I, growing up, I don't remember it being the catchphrase or the thing people were worried about. Anxiety. Yeah. It's over, it's overused. It's because most people could say, I just feel really stressed or I'm going through a lot of stressful circumstances. It's like, yeah, that's probably accurate. Are you having true anxiety about it? Well, this is why I offer these symptoms from the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> There's some really distinct things that are connected to the diagnosis, but anxiety is not necessarily, um, it doesn't have to exist if, unless you have, like I said, a diagnosis, but what are your thinking patterns 
to help you reduce some of those tendencies. I think that we're fixated on not mat. We don't know quite how to manage it. I think in our society, we're very bombarded with a lot of stuff and high expectations and performing, which I know later we might discuss a little bit more on that, but it's intensified because there's so much awareness of other people more than we ever did. I mean, I'm 40. So the internet came out when I went to college, literally, I mean, like the email opportunity to start emailing. So we didn't have ability to look at everyone else's lives, how they're functioning, what they're doing, what they're not doing. So I think there's a ton of comparisons going on, which creates in us like a sense of not being enough or doing enough. And that's That's probably part of it. That sense of not being enough causes internal anxiety, I guess, for a lot of people. That's actually, I think, at the core of most mental distress is your current reality compared to the perceived desired reality. That is as distant as those two get your reality to what you think it should be. Your distress will be great or low. Comparison can be a stressor. Let's look at perfectionism because this thought error is a big contributor to anxiety as well and it ties into comparison. Perfectionism is the belief that if we are not perfect in everything that we're doing, that we are a failure, that we're not good enough. Well, perfectionism is not a sign that you do things well. It is an inner belief that if you don't do things perfectly, that you're unacceptable. And obviously, since no one does things perfectly, this is a terrible waste of time and mental energy. Let's hear what Brigham Haynes has to say about perfectionism. I believe the word perfect is kind of contradictory to what perfectionism is because it doesn't make sense, you know, in this in this aspect, because if you think about it, if you're if everything has to be 100 percent correct all the time, nobody's going to be learning anything. Um, they're never going to expound on anything because they're too scared to make a mistake because perfectionism means that you never, ever fail. And the truth is, in order to perfect something, you have to fail in something. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like with anybody like Conor McGregor, I love watching Conor McGregor because he's funny, but he's also really good at what he does. He's a UFC fighter. And he talks about how when he quit his construction job, he got the the crap beaten out of him. He had no idea what he was doing in UFC but he kept showing up and through failure, he's become almost a perfect fighter. You would consider him pretty much if you wanted the the perfect symbol of, of fighting, you would pick Conor McGregor because he's well-rounded in everything and when it comes to fighting. So when when I think of perfectionism, what I've dealt with, I've had to realize that failure is just a truth that everybody has to deal with. And perfectionism, I honestly hate the word. I, I usually don't say hate because it's not a great word, but I hate the word perfectionism because a lot of people deal with it and it doesn't make sense because if something's perfect, you got to fail. And those two are definitely contradictory. So that's what I think about it. Well, you know, logically, you can look at perfectionism and you can say, nobody's ever going to be perfect at anything. I mean, you're just really not. And so to live up to that is, you know, it it's just a, a false conception. But then on top of that, logically, you can look at it and and tell yourself okay well if i 
if it's also really an indicator of insecurity that I feel like I'm not good enough unless I am perfect, then I just need to work on that self-concept. But the truth of the matter is when you're dealing with these mental issues, logic doesn't have a lot to do with it. And, and approaching them logically isn't always the solution. So then my question would be, how do you, in the interviews that you've had with people on your show, in and your own personal experience, what suggestions have you heard for being able to shift out of this belief and actually do it since logic doesn't generally provide the answer? That's a great question. So I've talked with lots of experts in different, not lots of experts, but a few because my podcast is new, but I've talked with a few experts and most of the things that they are suggesting is to just start lowering your expectations. And it takes a lot of practice. I think nowadays, especially with instant gratification through getting any information you want, people are expecting things to just happen suddenly. You know, something just the happy leprechaun comes in and fixes everything for you. It's a happy pill, right? Um, and the truth about that is, is that that doesn't happen. And with perfectionism, what they've told me is you've got to start just lowering your expectations with things and, and feeling comfortable in the moment you're currently in. You don't have to want to stay there, but it's okay to just feel comfortable where you're at for right now. You can have bigger goals in mind, but if if you only if your mind is always one focused on one goal and if anything else changes and it shifts to a different angle and you don't get to where you go exactly how you wanted it to, you're always going to feel empty-handed no matter what. So having lots of little goals is one of the biggest things they said is have little goals in mind. Don't just have one giant goal because then if you're just looking at one giant goal, then you, that's the only thing you're looking forward to. But if you create little goals, then you have lots of things to look forward to and to be able to feel like you achieve something. So overall, I would say just lower your expectations. It's okay to dream big, but don't make it so your life gets ruined because you don't get there immediately, if that makes sense. Of course. And how do you suggest that people adjust their self-concept in those spaces as they move along, as they are reaching smaller goals and as they're sometimes failing at those smaller goals, right? They're not reaching perfection every day. How do you adjust your self-concept to be okay with that? How do you start getting healthy with the idea that failure is acceptable and part of the process and you are not less than because of it? So one of the biggest things I've had to learn as somebody who has had to dealt with has had to deal with perfectionism is the idea that it's okay for things to not go to plan. And a lot of times people that are perfectionists, they think that everybody's watching them every single step of the way. They're, they judge themselves really badly. They're, they're always like, I could have done this. I could have done that. But the truth is, is the sad truth is most people are just trying to live their own lives. You know, they honestly are not focused on you. Um, I had to learn that the hard way. Uh, my brother, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but he, he helped me out through this because I had this idea that everybody's watching me every single second of the day and they always are caring about what I'm doing. The, the sad truth is, is even in your family, there are people that honestly, they love you, but they're not focused on you 24 seven. They don't have the time <laughs> or capability to. So just realizing that other people are human is one of the biggest um, game changers that I've had to learn is just realizing that other people are human and they have their own lives that they're living. Um, and another big thing with perfectionism is a lot of people tend to get into this trap of, oh, I have to be famous. I have to be this mm -hmm. or that. But when you start looking at what really matters, so I had to start looking at what what times in my life where I was I the happiest? Okay, was it the time when I got 
50 views or on Instagram or 50 likes, or was it the time when I was with my family in the middle of the mountains and we're just having fun, you know, understanding and really looking back in your life and understanding what really makes you happy, right? 50 likes maybe helped you for, for 10 seconds, but there's a reason why you remember those moments with your family, because those were the most impactful. So looking at back in your life and figuring out what was the most impactful thing and making that the focus of your life, you can have goals and, and, uh, hobbies. That's fine. But look at what really truly makes you happy, not what gives you instant gratification. Catherine confesses to being a recovering perfectionist, and she has some great insights on how it isolate, isolates us from false connection. Here's my conversation with her. You know, our daughter should be this, or our husband should be that, or whatever, my mom should be this. Those expectations actually create a kind of a disparaging difference. And then we, that, we actually- That sounds that that's true. Yeah, then we don't accept the current reality that we actually are living in. And I would say when we tell people, accept the reality that you have, like it is what it is, people often think that's complacency. And I would say, I believe that. <laughs> so growing up, people told me, you have too high of expectations. And I'm like, well, that's really bothersome. I don't like people criticizing that. That's something that I think is one of my strengths. But about it or the feeling not good enough, uh, the not measuring up part, the obsession with the expectations. It's okay to have goals, like reach, reach for high things and look forward to the future. Those are good things. But when it becomes distressing to you and we don't face what really is in front of us, then we do struggle. That's where anxiety, I think, and depression actually start to. So how do we get control of that? true presence, the power of now, like being in the moment, looking at what you have right in front of you, accepting it is more than just like being all right with it. Acceptance is, is gratitude for it, seeing it for what it is. I would say an example is I'm still, I'm single, not yet married. And if I constantly see myself in comparison to that expectation of where I should be or want to be, I will never be satisfied with the life that I have currently. Mm-hmm. If the if the marriage is rocky or they have a child with a disability or their money is never enough, you're always looking at what isn't there versus what is there. So truly being present with what you have. Super healthy Sounds thinking like, pattern right there. Yeah, yeah. It's not false or toxic positivity even. It's kind of like grounding. Absolutely. No, I yeah, agree. I and I is. think that's an important part to living a good life, always going to that place of gratitude. And when you can do that within your struggles, find the meaning and the purpose and the the beauty in them, mm-hmm. you are actually claiming a deep emotional resilience. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Claiming. What are your thoughts on perfectionism and how this contributes to stress and anxiety? I love this question. I'm a recovering work in progress perfectionist. (laughs) You can speak to it well. (laughs) Uh, I think about it all the time. I see it in others. I see it in myself. 
Um, so I would say it's actually like a form of pride slash control. And it is what it is in that sense. It's an unhealthy coping mechanism. I definitely don't see it as a skill. People might see it as a perfecting thing. Like I'm working to perfect myself. It it becomes unhealthy because it's basically saying, if I show up as perfectly as I can be, then I can control the outcome and therefore protect myself. <laughs> and I, I know for myself as well, it's only short-term relief that okay. never really brings you long-term connection. Let me share four principles for increasing self-compassion and decreasing perfectionism. The first is that you must become aware of perfectionism in your thoughts. Notice when it's holding you back from doing and contributing, interacting, because you feel like what you're offering isn't perfect. So notice that. When you notice that, the number two is challenge those thoughts, that feeling, that need to hold back because of your fear. Challenge it. Take yourself to the mat with the brutal truth that nothing anyone puts out there is ever going to be perfect, and we don't want to stay out of the game just because we're afraid that it's not going to be excellent. Three, accept that mistakes are a part of life. But like Brene Brown says in Daring Greatly, we have to get into the arena. We have to dare greatly in order to live a life that isn't small. We have to allow for vulnerability. And then number four, accept and love yourself and all your imperfections. It's okay. We are all a mixed bag of weaknesses and strengths. Join that club of humanity proudly. Those who struggle with stress and anxiety each have their own story, their own triggers. Sometimes it helps to hear other stories. So I wanted to share Brigham's story of how his anxiety surfaced and some suggestions from him on how he looks at it and manages it, what he thinks causes anxiety and depression. See if you agree. Let's move into stress and anxiety, even like a diagnosed anxiety disorder. Those can be so crippling. And we hear about it all of the time, so much more lately than ever when I was growing up. So what is your personal experience with stress and anxiety and how have you found steps to manage it? That's a great question. Uh, that one's, that one's quite the doozy. Whew. Uh, this is, let's all, let's all hop in here and we'll see how this goes. Um, so with my own personal experience, ever since I was a little kid, uh, my mom has told me many a stories of me just being a kid who um, was very curious, very, uh, observant, but I also was pretty high strung all the time. I was somebody who was always had to be doing something, always had to be in the moment. And, and it was just a hard life for me because as my parents got divorced, you know, I had a huge love for people growing up and that was what motivated me. That was one thing that calmed me was whenever that's what my mom told me is whenever I was around family or with my brother specifically, um, that anxiety and the, the, you know, the amount of focus I was having on lots of different things that went away. Um, I was just being myself. I was, I loved being around people. And then when my parents got divorced and I won't go into too much detail, but our dad was pretty manipulative. And so my love for people started to fade away because I didn't know who to trust. 
And it was really hard because my, my dad was, you know, saying lots of bad things about my mom. And so I believed him because he's my father figure. And then when, you know, his story started to crumble beneath the actual truth, it was pretty hard on me because I realized everything that I thought was true was gone. So my whole love for people just kind of dissipated. And that's kind of where my, my fear for people and my anxiety and depression started to build is when, when my true love of people kind of got thrown, like tore underneath me from like a rug, that was the hardest thing. And it wasn't really until gee, when I came back from my mission, um, that I really started to learn that it's okay to just start looking at your life and, and being okay with who you are specifically. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Quigley Down Under, but I liken anxiety and depression to crazy Cora. There, in, in the movie Quigley Down Under, there's a crazy Cora, okay? And I, there's a journey where Matthew Quigley, he's the main character of this movie, he has to go to this ranch because he got hired to um, originally to kill some wolves. So he was going there to kill wolves because they were eating up the flock. And so he was traveling from United States to Australia. And it was a big project. He was going to get paid. So he's like, yeah, I'm going down there. He's this big old Western dude. He's got a rifle on his back. Every every dude wants to be this guy. But anyways, that's why I love this movie. So he goes there and he has to, you know, he doesn't have a, you know, a horse or anything. So he has to get taken there by some of the, some of the workers from this ranch. So and Crazy Cora, she's, uh, I believe, I'm not sure if she's a prostitute or not, but she she definitely is somebody who, um, you know, gets gets paid for doing certain things that people shouldn't do. And these ranchers are the, you know, they like women. So they brought Crazy Cora on this journey. And as they were going through this journey, Quigley Down Under, or Matthew Quigley, he's going through this journey and she, she likes him a lot, but she's getting really annoyed or he's getting really annoyed with her because she's crazy. She just says some of the most ludicrous stuff you could ever hear. But once he starts getting to know her and getting to know her story and realize that she went through a lot of trauma, like for instance, she, while we're trying to protect her baby, she accidentally killed her baby in the, baby in the process because she was trying to cover up the mouth of the baby um, in order to make sure that the bad guys couldn't find them. But in doing that, she killed her baby. Her husband left her. So as quickly started to look at her story and not look at her as crazy, things started to get a little better. So why am I describing this story? Well, our brains are a little bit like crazy Cora. Sometimes we don't understand why they act in certain ways. We don't understand why they they force us to do certain things. Maybe we're in addiction or maybe we're struggling with anxiety and depression in this case. And that's what I was feeling. And I had to look at myself through Matthew Quigley's lens a little bit and look at my brain from my history and realize, okay, there's a reason why I struggle with this. It's not just because I'm crazy. It's not just because, you know, I was born with bad genetics. This is because I went through, I wouldn't say my situation was that hard compared to most people in the world, but it was, it was rough on me, especially as a kid. So what I would say is, you know, growing up for me, I had to just start looking at myself with a loving perspective instead of just looking at myself as crazy. You know, and that can go with anybody who's struggling with anxiety, depression. There's a reason why you're feeling the way you are. Don't look at yourself as crazy. There's a reason, but you just got to go look for it. Self-compassion. Yeah. Okay. So when you find it, so you are suggesting that you dig through it to find that. That brings me to the question of, do you think that um, anxiety happens from chemical imbalances in the head, or do you, especially anxiety disorder that's very severe, or do you think that it happens, it stems from events in your life or maybe both? So it depends on what kind of 
All right, this is where it gets kind of complicated, but I'll try to keep it brief from what I've learned from experts. So with diseases like bipolar and schizophrenia, those ones you need medication. They have not been able to find a way for being able to, you know, improve people's lives without medication. So what they found with those two, specifically bipolar and schizophrenia, is that no matter how much cognitive behavioral therapy they go through, no matter how much they change in their lives, it works for a little bit, but they continue to relapse over and over and over again, right? Um, and what I mean by relapse is they they go back into their old ways, they start, you know, getting depressed and, you know, they just, they, their life starting start to get really hard again. Um, whereas with somebody who deals with anxiety and depression, um, it depends on, and part of what I've learned is part of it's genetics, but most of it is from trauma and from how you grew up. Okay. So there's a lot of studies that show that, you know, there was actually a study done in the Philippines where they had a, a twin, they, they had twins. Okay. In the Philippines, and one was born in a rougher, you know, in rougher neighborhood, and the one was born in kind of a nicer area. And what they found—I'm not saying this is 100% correlation—but what they found is that the twin from from the you know in the rougher neighborhood, they had certain genes that were turned on that meant that you know they're having a higher level of anxiety, whereas the the other the other twin they didn't have those. So. I would say most of it is situational from what we can see right now. I don't know exactly. I'm not an expert, so I'm no master Shifu or anything. I'm not a, I don't know everything, but what I've learned from experts is that most of it is situational and trauma, specifically abuse. Abuse is one of the biggest reasons why people fall into depression. So those that, you know, are emotionally abused that go through bullying in high school, et cetera, or even from family, those are the, usually the ones that are going to end up with, with some kind of trauma. Or, or or diagnosed with anxiety or depression. Okay, so I want to challenge that a little bit because what if you're a listener who has a child grown or otherwise that you know has not been abused and they're still suffering from those things? Um, could it be a little dicey to say that most of it's going to come from trauma because that labels people? Well, I, I don't I don't think we're looking at trauma at the right perspective here. Trauma can mean um, you're left alone. So even if you have a perfect life, say, okay, so maybe you say you have a perfect life, you can trauma can happen in between you and yourself. It doesn't have to be from somebody else. So if you treat yourself poorly, you can develop those habits. Not everything has to be affected from other people. You can also do things to yourself, whether intentionally or not. So for instance, say somebody um, accidentally starts you know, you know, dissing on themselves all the time. That's just what they start to develop. So what I mean, mean by that is not that it's just that from sexual abuse, but mo the majority of the, the the situations that we're seeing where people are diagnosed, a lot of those have um, some kind of trauma within their life. So whether it's from you know, bullying. So, you know, we don't know, even as parents, my mom didn't know that sometimes I was bullied in high school. I didn't tell her some of these things because when I was in high school, you know, I, I seemed like a perfect kid, right? Like my family would talk to me, and but I wouldn't mention some of the things that were happening. So I'd challenge you a little bit on that because sometimes we think that their lives are perfect, but we don't see the full situation there. And trauma can happen in any situation, not just from, from crappy circumstances. So yeah, I, like the, the analogy I brought up with the twins, I'm not saying that because they were in that crappy situation that that's what caused it. But what I am saying is those that... Um, are either self-caused or not, 
it's gonna it's more likely they're going to develop an a depression or anxiety disorder whether whatever situation they're in doesn't matter okay. if they're rich poor so yeah. if i ask you what do you think are the greatest causes of mental health issues what i'm hearing you saying is that that's coming from trauma yeah trauma from both yourself if you're if you're if you're teaching yourself bad habits or from addiction right so trauma can mean anything. It doesn't mean like you, you know, you see a car wreck or anything, or you get abused. It can mean you get into an addiction and it starts ruining your life. That's a form of trauma as well, because you see your life crumbling beneath you. Um, so what I'm saying is that anxiety and depression oftentimes can be something where whether intentional or not, it's, it's making it so it's, it's making our lives hard. Here's some suggestions from Catherine for dealing with stress and anxiety. Okay, so then how, as a therapist, do you help people deal with an anxiety disorder? And do people get over it? Is it something where you can shift out of it? Well, it's interesting because as I've read things, it says that you can develop it, meaning that can be something that happens in your lifetime. You're not just inevitably predisposed to get it and then you just have to deal with it. I do see people work through anxiety. I've experienced it. I do have an anxiety issue. I am currently treated for it and I feel like I've had to work and do things for it to be less intense. Um, knowing my limits, um, lowering expectations. This is kind of answering your other question is how do I see this in my practice as the biggest cause of stress and anxiety? This is it. It's expectations of self, life, circumstances, how others we love think they should be. Let me mention a few things that you can use to help you. There are a lot here, so just listen and see which one fits best for you. If you can take one or two, great. The first one is talk with God. Know that he understands exactly who you are. All the good, all the bad, all the struggle. Imagine him sitting close and listening to you and offering support as you talk with him. Does anything come to mind that feels supportive? What advice can you feel? The second one is to ponder. When you feel stressed and anxious, go to a place of rest and pondering. Sit quietly and reflect on times that you felt blessed and supported. I think it's also helpful to, when you're pondering, sit in a space of gratitude for the things that are going right. I like to use the Psalm, quote, be still and know that I am God, unquote. The third, consider your expectations. Without a doubt, our emotions hop on a roller coaster when expectations are not met. When life doesn't turn out as we expected, we feel disappointed, we feel angry, we can feel panicked. These feelings raise your blood pressure and can cause deep anxiety and stress. Learning to manage those expectations, to allow for the flow of life and unexpected twists and turns in our life road, that's going to help us navigate these spaces better. All things shall give you experience. Another quote I like, <laughs> even when they are unexpected. The fourth thing, be aware of when you are stressed. Check in with yourself. Notice if you're not sleeping well, if you're getting angry easily, if you have low energy, if you feel depressed. When you notice these things, you're noticing indicators that stress is probably high in your life. Find a go-to that works for you to relax. 
you know, maybe refer back to the pondering, the talking with God. Maybe it's time that you just slow down, that you breathe, that you take some time for a nap, reach out for a chat with a friend that's really supportive to you. Be good to you and know what works to manage your stress. Figure that out. Maybe go on, you know, do a little research into your own self of when you're feeling stressed, what are the things that help you to decompress and take it down a level? You can also check your stories. What are you telling yourself about your life? Are you creating unneeded stress by harboring stressful thoughts about how busy you are or how you're not enough? Like, what are those internal voices saying? And how can you start to shift those to being supportive? In Mosiah 4.27, it says, quote, See that all things are done in wisdom and order, for it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength, unquote. I think this is an incredibly powerful and supportive verse of scripture because it reminds us that we don't have to be going a million miles an hour in order to be worthy of good things. Okay, number five, stress can often be relieved and managed by being active. We have physical bodies that are tied to our minds, the human soul. When we work out, we get endorphins and they affect our mood. Use this. Walk, run, bike, lift weights, be physical, do something that gets that emotion and that anxiety that that there's an avenue for it to work its way out. Number six, stay connected with people. Family and friends, those who love and support us can often be the smartest move. I remember being in a therapy session once and talking with my therapist about how I was feeling down and maybe not even safe in, in my home during one of my marriages. So I went over to my parents' house to stay for a while. I was really surprised by her response because I was just telling her what had happened, but she congratulated me on intuitively knowing where to go for safety and support that sometimes we need a change of scenery, sometimes we need to talk something out, sometimes we just need a hug, and we need to know that we're not alone. So going to your people. In episode four of this series, we'll be talking specifically about how to create and nurture healthy relationships because they are just so important to human mental health and happiness. So that's a big one. The seventh point here is sometimes we just need to take things one step at a time. Ask yourself, what is the most important thing I can do right now? Maybe it's super simple, but when we feel overwhelmed, taking things one step at a time becomes this really brilliant move. I feel like I do this pretty regularly and I do this only because if not, I get paralyzed. I may have 10 super big things on my calendar and I'll look at this and I'll like freeze up because there's just too much to do. But if I can look at what is the next step I need to take in this, then I can do that. The other podcast interviews can wait their turn. My packing for my trip can wait until I get this dinner party over with. I don't need to worry about that lesson I need to teach until after I take care of my client meeting today. I put things in the order that they need to be met, do that next thing on the list and know that I will do the the one after that when it comes up. This has really helped me. It lowers my stress level. It takes out 
the good for the best, the, the thing that I need to deal with right in front of me. So try that. And last, number eight, I'll just mention practicing mindfulness. When we can pull ourselves in from all the crazy stories we have going on in our mind, stories that are laced with fear and responsibilities that we're feeling crushed by, step away and get present. And what I mean by that is stop and really just be in this moment. As I've talked with people who have dealt with mental health issues and have found their answers, this often comes up. Things look completely different when they just stop and use their senses. Is there really anything to be fearful of in the moment? What can I see and hear and smell and feel on my skin? Like, what what is the story right now and can I just let go of that? What's actually going on around me? Sometimes the best thing is to get out of your head and get into your body. I have to constantly remind myself to do this, but when you can do it and when you can start to do it habitually, you have a completely different life experience because being present is so powerful. You must be present to win. In my discussion with Brigham Haynes, he had some ideas about how the things we get involved in affect our psyche and the environment that we are in, how it can crush us or really help us deal with things. So here's a couple of points that he brought up. So one thing I want to mention as well, Lori, is people that, you know, like I was saying before, you could have somebody who's in the wealthiest situation ever, right? They, that everything, if you're looking at an outside perspective, they have everything together. They got money, they've got a perfect family. They've got everything that you think would be needed in order to avoid a mental health situation where it's undesirable. Well, the truth is, is when you're doing things that are destructive, you can do those things even when you're in the, the best circumstances, right? So for what, instance- What kind um, of things? Yeah. So pornography is a big one. Um, Whether people want to agree with me on this or not, this is kind of a hot topic, but pornography is pretty big, uh, destructive wise, especially with families, I would say, Um, you know, especially I was actually talking to an expert, my uncle, Dr. Jeff Anderson, he's a brain neurologist. So he studies the brain and he was saying that technology and pornography has really affected the young women nowadays. So with young women, um, they have since a lot of men are watching pornography and a lot of times the, the women are dolled up, they look perfect. And these videos, men expect that from, from, uh, or they're, they're assuming that that's how it really is in reality. And the truth is, is now women start thinking that in order to feel that way, they have to look, they have to dress really scantily. They have to dress this way in order to get any kind of attention at all. And whether intentional or not, that's how they feel because men won't really look at them unless they, you know, they're showing a little bit of the, the, the bottom side, you know, and, and trying to show off more. So what I'm trying to say here is people that, you know, seem to be the, the, the they have the most ideal situation. They can still get into those, those situations that are really bad for them. So for pornography, heroin, et cetera. So no matter what we're doing, people can always end up doing things that can cause them anxiety and depression. And oftentimes we'll see the core, the a connection here. I'm not saying it's a correlation, but a connection here is people that do things that are destructive, like pornography, drugs, um, whatever, whatever can be just destructive, which we most of us know, those things end up leading towards anxiety and depression and feeling of feelings of uncertainty and self-worth. Like I was saying, you know, sometimes people get into things even when they don't seem like they should, like they're in the perfect situation to to not be able to fall into traps. 
Um, but oftentimes, you know, even as parents, you know, so my mom, for instance, I know I already mentioned this, but I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I got into a pretty heavy addiction um, when I was young. Like my mom was super loving. She tried to do the best she could. Uh, my stepdad, he was an awesome dude. He's, he, we looked up to him, but that didn't stop me from getting into an addiction that I didn't that I didn't realize it was going to be bad until I hit like 18 or 19. I didn't realize it was going to be something that was going to start like damaging my life. So one thing I would say about this is just because somebody doesn't seem like they should struggle, even if you know them and they're super close, don't assume that they're not going through something because anybody can fall into this trap. Pick your friends carefully, pick the people, really understand like, for instance, with my dad, okay? he's my dad and I, I, I want to love him and I want him to be part of my life. But I had to look at it and say this, he's my dad and he's my biological dad, but he adds nothing to my life right now. He just makes it worse. And anytime that I'm around him, it just, he makes me not like people. He makes my life miserable. So if I'm talking about you, one of the biggest things that can change somebody's anxiety and depression, this is from Dr. Jeff Anderson. And he says the environment is the biggest reason why people fall into depressions, anxiety, or why they continue with their coping is because their environment currently causes them to feel that way. So if you have friends and family that are causing a lot of damage to you, it's okay sometimes to be like, hey, right now, I, I, I love you, but I cannot deal with this right now. I know that's a really hard step, but what I've had to realize is that there are people that want the best for you and there are those that just are all about themselves. For many, anxiety is no joke, no small thing, like it's a diagnosed anxiety disorder. It's not just feeling intense stress, it's like a full mental attack. I know someone who had to pull their car over during an anxiety attack. They were shaking and drooling and even passed out. Thank goodness they pulled the car over. A friend had to come and find them and help them out of that space. Healthy tools that help us get present, help us release that fear of the future, help us shift into simple versus overwhelming. These are key to emotional resilience. And I'm not qualified to speak on severe anxiety attacks. I don't pretend that I am. Um, sometimes you need medication or a doctor's help. Like the tools that we've talked about today are powerful. So seek to understand and implement them as they work for you. Even just one of them can make a big thing doable for you. And then if you need professional help, of course, seek that help. These are just two, these are just tools that you can implement to help you on this really, you know, rocky path. Brigham Haynes and I talked about this idea of seeking solutions. Here's what he had to say. Start talking with people, okay? You gotta start talking with therapists. So the first thing I would suggest is talk to a therapist. So talk to somebody who you can trust and who can see your situation, which is oftentimes a therapist, and they can help you sort through what you're feeling, but also they're the ones that are gonna be able to see a little bit more clearly um, while you're going through a little bit more of a struggle to see if you really need medication or not. And oftentimes it's people that are in such a deep rut, they oftentimes recommend medication. So if, if your question is, do I support medication? I 100% do because I'm no expert. And from what the experts tell me, they say that sometimes you do need medication. So, you know, I was, I, I was I, listening to yeah. an interview with Lady Gaga and Oprah and Lady Gaga suffers from a lot of mental health issues just on a regular basis. And she was being really open and blunt about 
how she struggles every day just to even function, right? But she was, she really drove home the point that there is a different cocktail of medication that's going to work for everyone. You might suffer or feel, you know, self-diagnose or feel like you suffer from the same thing she does. But when it comes down to it, you two are probably because of your chemicals and, you know, all the different things going on with you, you're going to have a different concoction of drugs that work for you. So if medication is the answer for you, then you need to know that it's not the same as your buddy who's depressed. You know, it's going to be something that you work with professionals and you test things because sometimes they don't work. Sometimes they make you sick, right? Like it's a process of coming up with the right medication. So I, what I hear you saying is mental health is very different for everyone. Consider mm -hmm. deeply what your trauma triggers may be and start with, let's say, start with a therapist to maybe dig into some of that to help you decide if you need medication to help you decide if there's things to talk through and to deal with. And maybe it's a combination of both for a while. Maybe you don't need it. Like it's going to be very individual, that journey, but be open to whatever that journey may hold for you. Is that accurate? Yeah. One thing I want to add as well here is that you shouldn't expect the doctors or the therapist to be your solution. Um, so I can testify this from personal experience. I went into therapy and thought, you know, therapy was going to solve all my issues. They were just going to pick through everything. And then I would just be fine after I walked out of the office. Um, same with medication. So I was, I'll kind of go into a little bit of my history here. I won't go too deep, but um, I, I thought some people thought I had ADHD. So I went into the office and I got prescribed ADHD medication and, from there, I thought my life was going to go 100 times better. Okay, I thought, oh, this is the happy pill. It's going to work. It's going to change everything. Truth is, is those things are just little boosts. They are not meant to cure everything. Like I was saying, your brain is super complicated. There's a crazy core up there in your brain that you got to start understanding and learning how your brain works. Because oftentimes we just act on habit, right? Instinct. So what I want to preface here is, I, what I would start doing from what I've learned from lots of different you know, researching is start doing the small things. Okay. So one of the biggest things that they found, whether it's cliche or not, is start cleaning your room, make your space super clean and the way you want it to be. Cause it all, everything stems from where you live. If you're in your house 24 seven, it's messy, it's gross. Oftentimes that starts to go into your mind as well. So I want to preface this by saying you, you got to start doing the small things first you can't expect the doctors and the therapists to just solve your issues you you have to start putting work in yourself as well i also wanted to know what he suggested as far as loved ones who support those who struggle with anxiety and depression and here is what worked for him as people who are supporting say children or loved ones who are dealing with mental illness what are the best things that we can do to support and love, especially when they are not young children. Let's say we have adult children or an a, adult spouse or um, just a friend that we love. How do we be supportive in their struggles when one, we may not understand it or two, they have their own agency. So, you know, they don't really listen to what we think or maybe we just don't know what to say. Like, how, how do we support if we aren't the ones struggling? So one of the biggest things that, you know, when I moved up here to Roy, that was the turning point in my life. It was really rough. You know, I got back home from my mission 
And oftentimes when you come home early from a mission, it, it can, whether intentional or not, it can be pretty rough um, culturally, um, socially. And so when I got back home from my mission, I was feeling a lot of guilt, a lot of all kinds of stuff, all kinds of feelings. And one of the biggest things that helped me out the most was my my brother when he when I got here, he he loved me from who I was, you know, I, he was always available for me when he was like, when he was available, he wasn't saying like, Oh, you can call me in the middle of the night. Cause you know, we got to sleep. There's things that you guys that you have to do, but he was there to listen to me. Sometimes I've learned that when I'm talking to somebody, say I'm going through something rough, right. If I'm just, if I'm just there and talking with them, sometimes by me talking and explaining what I'm feeling, I, it starts to click. I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. You know, now I know why I'm feeling this way. And I, I find a route to how to fix that. So one of the biggest things I would say is be available to listen. Don't even say like my brother didn't say a word half the time. He just sit there and listen. And then I'd be like, Oh, well, that makes sense. Why am I doing it? So w- the biggest thing that I could say to anybody is just be available because oftentimes when you try to get involved and you have no idea what they're, they're experiencing, you're just going to make the situation worse. Um, I, I, you know, for instance, when I was growing up, uh, this kind of happened to me. Sometimes family members would try to step in and just give me advice, but that didn't really help. But when they would just listen to me, that was the biggest game changer is because uh, somebody who deals with a mental illness, sometimes they don't even understand themselves. So if, if they can just sometimes just talking with somebody or just having somebody in front of you and hearing what you're saying, really understanding and talking to somebody and and thinking about what you're saying before you say it helps people to look at okay, maybe that's not the right way to look at it. Maybe there's a different angle here. So actually that's part of the reason why cognitive behavioral therapy is so impactful. Um, Aaron Beck was the creator of cognitive behavioral therapy. He's called the father of cognitive behavioral therapy. I do an episode about him. And what that is, is basically instead of a therapy telling and analyzing somebody, what they do is they have the person talking to them, but then they question some of their views in life. Like, oh, does that really make sense though? Is that... Is that really logical? Do you think, you know, thinking that way that everybody hates you is really logical? Um, So it's almost like teaching people to question things. So honestly, biggest thing, just be there, listen, and um, sometimes be polite, but also question question them sometimes, but in a polite way. Like, does that really make sense though? It's my hope that you've received even just one small thing that you can use moving forward. Practice it. That's how we get emotionally resilient. We practice these emotional resilience tools. Natalie Goldberg, one of my favorite writers, said, quote, Stress is an ignorant state. It believes that everything is an emergency. Nothing, she says, is that important, unquote. Which I think goes hand in hand with these words from Virginia Woolf, quote, No need to hurry. No need to sparkle, no need to be anybody but yourself, unquote. When the idea of living big that is so popular right now is crippling, set down into the basics of just being you, whatever that looks like right now, because that is living big. You are worthy of being here, worthy of having this life experience, and it's just fine to take it slow and intentionally create whatever it needs to be for you. I have to tell you in my life, I have gone 
speed. It's been all about accomplishment. And the last few years has been a really interesting shift for me. It's been a shift down and I haven't even known how to interpret it. Just that my mind and my body are causing me to take that shift. So these things that I'm saying, I'm also saying to myself and intuitively, I know that they're right. It's just sometimes hard when you are strung, you're, you're wired to go fast and to go hard and to feel like that's where you're building worth. That going slow, that living in, just living in a space that's not 100 miles an hour is also worthy and also beautiful. Living with intention doesn't mean that everything is on superpower. It simply means that you are intentionally choosing what works for you, what brings you satisfaction and joy and connection. And we all have permission to go at whatever speed looks like goodness for us right now. And for me, I don't know where you're at, but for me right now, that is a shift down. And as I'm shifting down, I'm finding that there is a lot of beauty in having time to read, having time to sit on the patio and listen to the stream. You know, theoretically, I'd always thought, yeah, that's that's the life. But I'd never let myself do it for any long amount of time because I had to get out and do things that were more meaningful. But as I'm getting into that shifting down, these are beautiful spaces and they are worthy. And I'm still, I'm still learning and teaching myself that. It's all a process. Thank you for being here today. Join us in two weeks for episode four. It's called Stronger Together, Building Resilience Through Healthy Relationships. Please share this episode with anyone you know who is working to manage stress and anxiety because you never know what tip is really going to give them another tool that helps them through a rough day. You never know what's going to land with them. Share the love, people. Thanks for being here.